The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. John. Milne. There are too many of you. Too, too, I, actually, weirdly enough, my Bloomberg uh, uh, email is jstepic2. I keep wondering who is jstepic1. There you go. That's not quite really sure. Although, John, oh, okay. please do get in touch. Please get in touch. <laughs> I think that would be kind of fun. Now, the podcast that, we've, that we're doing today with an interview with Peter Turchin is all about how we have a problem with having too many elites, too many Oh, that's the first time I've been. I know. It's the elite. elite. In a very long you're, time. You're, so you're a member of the elite, highly educated, <laughs> and you've got great expectations of your future, right? This, this is true. This is still. you an elite. And when there are too many elites, do you know what happens? You get counter-elites. Ah, yeah, and maybe I, that's us. Maybe we're counter elites. But it's, and that's leading me on to, we'll come on to that interview in a little while. It's really interesting. But it's leading me on to the fact there's going to be a lot more counter elites very soon because we had today, we had HMRC figures on the number of taxpayers moving into being higher rate taxpayers as opposed to base rate taxpayers. And what we're seeing here is the effect of fiscal drag, which is pretty full on. So it used to be that practically nobody paid the higher rate of tax. Now we think we're at about one in six. And in a couple of years, that's going to be one in five. And we've talked about this quite a lot before. There's a reason. There's a reason why people don't vote for higher taxes, because they have a feeling that at some point in their career, they're going to be a higher rate taxpayer. And with one in six, one in five people paying a higher rate over a career, either you or your partner, someone in your household, is going to end up paying that rate at some point, most likely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely more than 50% chance. Whenever we looked at the figures someone else had done for America, it was not something like 70-odd percent people yeah. ended up in the highest tax band over their lifetime. More people are dragged into this. Um, you've got uh, 5.6 million higher rate taxpayers in the tax year 23-24, right? That's a 40% increase since 2020-2021. 40%. Yeah, I mean, that's extraordinary. And you can see why that will, you know, that will frustrate people. They're not, it's not so much counter-elites as kind of reluctant elites. You know, I, mean, I, I very much doubt that many of those 40% consider themselves to be the people who should be paying higher taxes. Well, um, they need to think about their levels of self-esteem because the government considers them elite. <laughs> Sadly, there you go. It's a compliment. It's a backhanded it's a compliment. That's not even backhanded. It's straight up there. We think you're doing so well. You're so elitey. You're so rich that now you have to pay 40% tax. And if you don't watch out, it'll be 45%. And what's more, there's a wealth tax coming in, and this tax coming in, and that tax coming in, and this tax coming. Feeling elite yet? They're doing it for you? No wonder those counter elites. Uh, it's, it is a problem. I mean, the other thing that we, we mention occasionally, but is also the, the narrowing of the tax base. Mm-hmm. Um, and on, on the one hand, I'm all for the idea that you should allow people to keep as much of the money they earn as possible. But it becomes trickier whenever the way that you're doing that for people at the lower end of the income scale is by charging them 
no tax at all. But then as soon as they get anywhere near getting above that, suddenly the marginal tax rates become extremely high. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've reached the point now where that should no longer be the goal. You know, it's like in an ideal world, like everyone would be paying even a little bit of tax. Because as much as anything else, there's the philosophical consequences of that, you know, everyone pays in a bit at least, and it just signifies that you are a kind of contributor to society, et cetera, et cetera. We're all in this together. We're all yeah, exactly. very democratic. Whereas right now, the top 50% of income taxpayers are paying 90.5% of total income tax. So we're pulling in 2021, we pulled in a, we, they pulled 196 billion quid, which is nice, right? 177 billion of that was paid by the top 50%. Now, you may say, broadest shoulders. But sometimes those with the broadest shoulders, you know what they do? They hike suitcases onto those shoulders and move. Yeah, or they retire. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking um, the other day, seeing a few statistics about the senior doctors kind of leaving the workforce. Essentially because they don't consider it worth their well to work for the pay they get at the tax rate they have to pay. And you think, well, no one talks about, you know, Gulch, Gulch being full of you know, <laughs> public sector employees, but this is the same thing. This is, you know, Dr. Atlas shrugging, you know, yeah. and kind of like stepping onto the golf course because actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a highly qualified professional and I am not being treated well enough by you. So I, I think that that's something we have to be very aware of now. And, and that vulnerability has increased because of this mm. ongoing approach, which, which I think was probably a good idea in, in the first instance, but now it's kind of going a bit too far. Well, that brings us back neatly to the worst forecaster in the world, that nice Mr. <laughs> Bailey. Um, <laughs> I was thinking there's a lot of competition, but... There is competition. I mean, you know, the Bank of England is not the only central bank to have made a phenomenal number of mistakes over the last couple of years. But he did say the other day something that was, you know, that music to our ears, John, which is that Brexit is not responsible for the labour shortage in the UK. That's all our own fault. It's a homegrown problem. So, you know, the, uh, the labour force in the UK is down about half a million people since the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, our working age population hasn't fallen at all. In fact, I'm, I'm assuming it's risen. I think it's risen. But nonetheless, we have many fewer people prepared to work. And that is one of the reasons why the transmission mechanism of sticking up interest rates and hoping for the best in terms of inflation isn't working in quite the way one would expect it because our labour market remains very tight and Mm. doesn't work quite so well in the mortgage market as one might have expected in the past because 36% of people own their homes outright and uh, I can't remember the number, 28% I think are held with... It's about 28%, yeah. 28%, which is not not as many as you might expect. And all those mortgages are on fixes, so they roll off incredibly slowly. So the transmission mechanism just doesn't quite work. And then there is the final part of this puzzle that you and I were talking about earlier, which is that the UK still has a very high level of excess savings. So even as inflation rises, even as interest costs go up, people still have spare cash. Is that right? Yeah, it's interesting. There was um, a report from Deutsche Bank that just came across my desk this morning. And um, and yeah, they looked at the G10. And this all stemmed from because the Fed was apparently doing a report uh, at the end of last week 
which sort of found that the US has actually spent all its excess savings. And now, by the end of quarter one or something like that, they'd started to dip below the average amount of savings. Um, but other than that, all the other G10 economies, except for, sorry, except for that and Sweden, still have a decent amount of excess savings. And at the top of the pile is Canada and the UK with 10% of GDP, roughly, which is a lot. You know, that's, that's a, a, a big kind of uh, cushion. And it does make you think, well, yeah, you can see how the economy has been more resilient. You can see how consumers have sort of maintained. And obviously, these savings are not evenly equally distributed. But the point is that's that's not relevant in the context of what we're discussing just now. But also, yeah, that's going to make it much harder and probably mean that Bailey, to be fair to him, is right whenever he's saying that interest rates will have to be higher for longer before they can have any any impact or, or at least, you know. A big enough impact for his liking. Yeah, but that's nice though. So we can just give people excess savings and a nice cushion against anything bad happening by printing money. Maybe we should print more. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. Is that what MMT, here we come. But it's interesting, isn't it? And in that it does seem, if you look at the money supply numbers, that this is the villain. And one of the reasons why the Bank of England models just don't work is because A, all these transmission mechanisms that we've talked about. Uh, don't work quite as well as they used to, but also the Bank of England models, they only run on data back the last 30 years or so. So they missed our last big inflationary incident and they tend not to include any reference to the money supply numbers. So, you know, there you go. Rubbish in, rubbish out, right? It's true. I did think there was uh, one interesting thing. One of our Bloomberg colleagues shared a clip from the chat at Centra yesterday. And uh, Ueda Kazuo, I think that's how you say it, the, um, mm-hmm. the central bank boys in Japan. <laughs> and he's sitting there and you've got Lagarde and you've got, you know, Jay Powell at the Fed and you've got Andrew Bailey sitting there. They're all a bit uncomfortable. And you can see that internally he's chuckling away because he's finally like, after 30 years of Japan being the odd one out that you all wanted to avoid, I'm now able to sit here and laugh at you lot because you all want to be me now. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, there's something very, very pleasant about it. So he's sort of joking away and you can see the rest of them kind of laughing kind of like nervously in their seats nervously. thinking, I wonder if any of them have noticed that Japan didn't print money manically all the way through the, um, all the, way through the pandemic. Maybe they have. Well, yeah, I, I do think that's interesting because people always make the point that, oh, well, Japan did QE for X number of years and it didn't do anything. But mm. as James Ferguson, a friend from Micro Strategy Partners, has pointed out, they didn't do anywhere near as much at, at any point during those proceedings. So it's interesting. Mm. Um, okay, we better move on. We Actually, no, there's one more thing I want to ask you. There's one more thing I want to ask you about. Which, which people will understand when they listen to the interview that's coming up next. One of the big problems, John, over the last few years has been this massive rise in not income inequality, or it's a different issue, but wealth inequality, as people who have wealth already have seen it in nominal terms explode, or in real terms yes. explode, thanks, we think, to very low interest rates. Now, one of the things that uh, my next interviewee, Peter, thinks is a, is a major problem, and one thing that will lead us into a nasty world of, of social breakdown, political turbulence, general dislocation, is this wealth inequality. But is it fair, do you think, to say that as interest rates rise and normalise, that wealth inequality might rebalance itself? Yeah, um, I do. Um, I just think to an extent, we're already seeing glimmerings of that 
And I also think that what's interesting is that whatever else you want to say about the UK's specific situation, I think that the difference between the coming election and the 2019 election shows you that political polarisation, if that's involved in this, um, has probably already peaked here. And I think it's interesting that that's happened just as interest rates are going up and people's real wages are in serious danger of actually being positive this year. So I think the, the you know the pendulum's swinging from uh, capital to labour again, and um, hopefully that will continue. Yeah, so that affects wealth distribution, interestingly, yeah. and it also affects the political environment. It affects the well, the culture wars to a degree. Yeah, definitely. Um, Interesting. I just <laughs> wanted to get your take on that quickly because that means that we can head into this interview in a more optimistic frame of mind than we might otherwise, because I talk with Peter about how we can get out of the nasty situation that we're in. And it's hard to be optimistic, but if you can see uh, what I think we think we see, this beginning of a rebalancing, then you can come out at the end of the interview that you're about to get feeling more positive than you might otherwise. So, this is impressive. You're basically giving the the, the listeners a, a pessimism trigger warning before you've even started. <laughs> that this is unusual. <laughs> I can't wait That's to really, hear this one. And I don't even approve of trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Zumza Webb. This week, our guest is author Peter Turchin. He joined me to discuss his latest book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Now, I have been looking very carefully at your latest book, and I know this is not your first book. For the purposes of this podcast, I think it's the most interesting. It's also the most recent, and it's called End Times, Elite, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. Now, I didn't say it was a cheery read, and it's not a particularly cheery read, is it? Well, actually, end times are often the times of new beginnings. So um, in the final chapter of my book, I do talk about some more hopeful things. Okay, good. Well, we'll get to that. We we won't go there now because we'll try and re- we'll try and leave the optimism for the end. Okay, try and leave everyone on a cheery note. That sounds let's, good. Let's, let's start uh, with with the basic idea of what you think it is that is causing the political and social instability that we see around us at, at the moment. Um, and particularly, I'd like to just touch on why it is that you're sure that there's a more than usual amount of social and political dislocation at the moment and that everybody thinks they live in interesting times, right? Everybody thinks they live in worse times than than any previous generation. So first, is it necessarily the case that we are living in interesting times? And if so, what is it that that your theory tells us about why that is? It is not actually true that uh, throughout the history, people always thought they live in bad times. Because in fact, when we look back at the few thousand years of human history, 
we see that complex human societies organized as states have been around for, for about uh, 5,000 years, and uh, they experience uh, good periods, we call them integrative periods of internal peace and stability, which can last for about 100 years, sometimes uh, less, sometimes more. So uh, there are good periods. During those 100-year periods, do you think that there weren't middle-aged people sitting around going, Christ, kids today, and society is disintegrating, and oh, it's awful, etc., even in those periods? Well, it's a quantitative thing. There are always people who are unhappy, but during their integrative periods, there, there are very small numbers of them. And in fact, you can see that in the literature, for example, from those uh, the high Middle Ages, from the age of uh, reason, the 18th century, that literature is much more hopeful, optimistic. And then the end times come, and the literature, the tone turns to more pessimism and expectations of horrible things to happen, and so on and so forth. So we can see this shifts in uh, a collective mood from uh, the good periods to bad periods and vice versa. Okay, interesting. And so what, what is it, and this is the main point of the book, that, that brings these rather pleasant-sounding integrated periods to an end? Yeah, so what are those end times we're talking about? These are periods of social uh, instability, uh, political, often uh, disintegration, fragmentation. So think about uh, French and Russian revolutions, American Civil War, and uh, many other things. So what is important is that the data that we have collected shows that all complex societies organized the states do enter such disintegrative periods. So the question is why? The common theme that we see in our analysis is uh, what we call elite overproduction. So maybe um, let me uh, explain that, why elite overproduction in those pre-crisis periods signals that some kind of end times are approaching. Uh, first of all, um, who are the elites? Elites are simply a small proportion of the population, one or two or three percent, who concentrate social power in their hands. So this could be, you know, the proverbial one percent in America or the Mandarin class in Imperial China. And going back uh, in history, military nobility in medieval England, uh, for example. All right. So the next key question is the dynamics. How are elites reproduced and recruited? There are always more elite wannabes. Well, the technical term is elite aspirants. For the number of elite positions, uh, power positions that does not change very rapidly. And some competition is, of course, good. The problem is when uh, periodically in uh, our societies, we get situations where there are too many elite aspirants for too few elite positions. As the numbers of elite aspirants uh, greatly overwhelm the number of power positions, the inter-elite competition becomes very intense and it uh, actually leads to bad outcomes, such as the social norms governing the, uh, the behavior start to be thrown away. And we saw that very clearly in 2016 in the United States during the presidential elections, there was an unprecedented number of candidates in the Republican Party uh, primaries. So there were 17 major candidates. 
And the competition between became so intense that one individual in particular started breaking norms and it spread. Everybody started breaking norms. And then uh, the, the person who was the best at it actually got elected eventually. And so that is what we see in other cases in uh, UK or let's say England. The 17th century was a period, the mid 17th century was a period of great disruption. There were too many elite aspirants, and the competition between them, in fact, led to the English Civil War. So this is a very uh, general phenomenon that we observe in uh, history over and over again. Let's talk about the way that periods of, of peace, pleasant, attractive periods of economic growth and peace would automatically lead to the situation, right? Because if you're living through a good period where people are generally getting richer and where people are happy, you will automatically get many more highly educated people and many more people who want to be part of the elite. So it's it's naturally unstable. Peace can only, yeah, can only lead to instability. There's no other end. That's a good question. Why do societies suddenly or uh, gradually uh, acquire this problem of elite overproduction? This is um, uh, best understood by thinking about something that sociologists call the iron law of oligarchy. Essentially, what happens is that during these integrative periods, when things are so nice and peachy, the ruling class decides that things will continue going on an even keel automatically. And uh, it is human to try to... Uh, reconfigure things so that um, you get more uh, out of the system than others. So what happens is that elites reconfigure the economy in a way that they direct the fruits of economic growth towards themselves. I call it the perverse wealth pump because it takes from the poor and gives it to the rich. Let's say in the uh, 17th century in England, to use the example, what happened was there was a, a fairly massive population growth. As a result of that, there were too many workers for the number of jobs to have. And the price of labor declined, and the elites had a golden age. This was the first half of the 17th century. The elites uh, had the golden age because the price of servants and also the peasants who were working land was uh, very low, but uh, they were the ones who were landowners and uh, employers, and therefore their economic conjuncture for them was really great. But then what happens is that because times are good for the elites, it's really not a golden age, it's a gilded age because the inequality is growing and the population quality of life is declining. Right. But elites for a while actually do quite well. The problem is that in, a, in a one or two generations, what happens is a result of these good conditions. Uh, some uh, people have more children. Other There is also upward social mobility from the commoner population into the elites. And that's why you get too many elites. The uh, social pyramid becomes top heavy. So you could you could uh, compare that to our most recent situation where 
you know, in the UK and in the US, for example, uh, real wages have stayed very low. And, and well, not to say very low, what I mean is they haven't, haven't gone up as you would expect with GDP. Real, real wages in the UK, for example, have been static for a, a decade plus, which many people, of course, blame on, on large amounts of uh, immigration and the population growing very fast. You've had very cheap labour. And that is very similar to what you've just described, is given the elites a rather marvellous time. And simultaneously, you've had this huge expansion in university education. So instead of being a graduate being a relatively niche activity, close to 50% of the uh, of the young people in our societies are going to university and coming out with expectations that simply can't be met uh, yep. by the number of elite jobs in the economy. Is, is that fair? So we're pretty much where we were before the Civil War. Yeah, well, uh, very similar. <laughs> yeah, so for example, in fact, in those um, developments that you have just outlined, they are all connected. So in the United States, for example, after the New Deal, especially, we had a very good run when the wages of uh, median, so typical workers, increased together with the economy. All right. And so we saw uh, both in the United States and in Western Europe the, the glorious 30 years, post war years until 1970s. And then what happened in the United States, which I studied very carefully, is that the uh, governing elites essentially started to dismantle the New Deal. They rolled back the power of workers to organize and uh, bargain with employers. The minimum wage stopped growing, and they, of course, reduced the taxes on, the, on themselves. And so this is what turned the wealth pump on. And everybody probably seen this famous graph uh, where you look at that uh, American worker productivity, which keeps growing after uh, 1970s, but the compensation stays flat or even declines. So the difference between compensation and productivity, that's the wealth pump. That's the uh, mechanism that pumped uh, wealth from the or from the workers to the economic elites. If you look at OECD countries, the United States is really an outlier in the extent to which inequality has increased. UK is somewhere in between, and then we see countries like France and Germany and uh, so on. And when we talk about wealth inequality in the US as, as well as everywhere else, we're not really talking about the 1% or the 2% or the 5%, we're really talking about the 0.01% or even the 0.001%. We have a, a new uh, super wealthy elite, but the gap between, say, the top 5% and the majority hasn't necessarily changed so much, or has it? Yeah, exactly. So just look at the numbers of billionaires uh, in the Forbes list. It exploded. But it, but it actually, um, this increase in uh, uber wealthy goes all the way down to, let's say, people with decamillionaires, people with $10 million or more of wealth. Their numbers in the last 40 years increased by a factor of 10. Whereas the population grew by 40%, the numbers of decamillionaires uh, increased by an order of magnitude. So this is the effect of the wealth pump. Okay. Now, I know that wealth inequality is only part of the conversation here, because obviously the number of elites is not necessarily directly related to current levels of wealth equality. And I know that there are other, other factors that you talk about in end times that bring us to moments of extreme political instability. But when we talk about the resolution of the situation, such as the one that we are in, and I don't want to come back to the other factors, by the way, is it possible 
that the period of change that we're living through at the moment in terms of high inflation and hence high interest rates will have a fairly quick, fairly dramatic effect on wealth inequality. And that we know one of the things we talk about on this podcast a lot is the way in which super low interest rates, negative real interest rates, uh, washes of, of quantitative e easing cash, et cetera, are the things that have created this vast amount of wealth at the top. And as interest rates go up, uh, asset prices come down and a lot of that relative inequality diminishes. Is that a dynamic that could get us out of the situation you talk about with relative ease? Well, looking at history, no. Because first of all, we, we uh, in fact uh, try to uh, tune out the inflation and uh, deflation out of our calculations by looking at uh, inflation-adjusted things. Now, inflation has multiple effects, and some of them are decrease the uh, power of economic elites because inflation erodes their wealth. But on the other hand, th that wealth is invested, right? And so during the high inflation, you also have high returns on the capital and therefore the, their, their wealth grows. Also inflation, uh, because the wages don't necessarily keep increase in parallel with inflation, the real wages also decline. Yeah, I suppose my, my question really is that a lot of that dynamic could change. It could change in that we know, for example, that um, a lot of the long duration assets that have benefited enormously from very low interest over the last decade, as interest rates remain high, we'll see very sort of dramatic real falls, not just nominal falls. And we're also beginning to see, particularly in, in, in the UK, a wage price spiral because, you know, our workers aren't idiots. They know that their real wages have fallen dramatically over the last decade. And now they see an opportunity quite rightly to try and grab back some of that compensation. So then there may be inside this economy some automatic rebalancings that help. No, not, there's, unfortunately, there's nothing automatic uh, about it. Uh, what we, um, so we have now about uh, approaching 200 cases mm. of past societies sliding into crisis and then emerging from it. Unfortunately, in the majority of cases, maybe 80, even 90%, something fairly horrible happens, civil war, uh, uh, transformative revolution, um, all uh, fr political fragmentation, collapse of the state and things like that. And so in the 10 or 15% of uh, good outcomes, it is always a concerted action by the uh, prosocial segments of elites leading, persuading the rest of the elites that we either impose reforms on the from the top, or you'll have to have a revolution from below, and then cooperating with the rest of the population. That's what happened in the United States during the progressive and then the New Deal era. And this is what happened uh, in uh, UK during the so-called Chartist period. That's the middle of the 19th century. British Empire was the only large European state that escaped a revolution of 1848, essentially, because the elites understood that they had to uh, do the reforms to in order to uh, avoid it. So what they did, as uh, probably you know, and your listeners know, they uh, gave uh, much more power to workers, uh, suffrage increased, they allowed uh, workers to organize, um, they uh, repealed the corn laws, which was uh, a really bad wealth pump. 
and a um, bunch of other things. And as a result of that, England was uh, the only country that escaped revolution. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. During the um, charters period in the UK, we also had quite a high level of emigration, right? Previous to that, it had been relatively hard to emigrate from the UK. And then we had a period when a lot of people did go. And from that period on as, as well, of course, or later, I suppose, the uh, we had a lot of the elite leaving as well. So exactly. we had a, an escape valve for our elite in, in, into the empire. But this, those were important, yes. Uh, so England had an empire. And that pro provided a way to flatten the curve, so to speak. Mm -hmm. it essentially, by a, a massive immigration to Australia and people also moving to North America, and also shipping the surplus elites to positions uh, to imperial officials abroad, that helped. But that basically bought time. As right. a result, the charter spirit, it took like um, almost two generations to really retune the social system in the UK to make it much more balanced. Yeah, as a classic example of um, Adam Smith's quote, you know, one of my favorite ones, there is a lot of ruin in the nation, um, <laughs> wrote in, it in a letter. His <laughs> point was not that society is fragile. His point when he said there's a lot of ruin in, the na in a nation is that a solid nation with flexible institutions. And if he was here today, I expect he'd add that with a flexible elite, but particularly with solid and flexible institutions can weather awful lot of difficult times and what he was trying to say in this letter to the discontented young person. Yeah, but he really lived so head up. Don't worry, we have great institutions. It's gonna be fine. Um, yeah, but he lived during the well, integrative period. He yeah. lived during the integrative period, uh, the age of reason, the 18th yeah. century. We now, unfortunately, uh, have, have to be more pessimistic. Yeah, you're right. Although I suppose in the UK we do have another escape of which is that we can we can shovel all our counter elites and our discontented elites into the House of Lords. That seems to keep them quiet. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen. What are the other the other factors? We've talked a lot about the overproduction of of elites leading us to end times in various societies. What are the other other factors that, that bring us to? Yes. Yeah, so remember, we talked about the wealth pump, and the wealth pump has three um, consequences. First of all. It increases the popular immiseration, increases mm -hmm. discontent, and as a result, uh, uh, the population is much more ready to rebel and follow various radical movements. Right. It also increases the number of wealthy, overproduction of the wealthy who want to translate their power into political office, and that creates the game of aspirant chairs. But it, the third effect is more subtle. Because the majority of the population sees their well-being declining, some proportion of them, the more energetic, the more ambitious people, aim to escape. And how do you escape from that? By getting the credentials that allow you to compete uh, for better jobs. And that's what we see. We saw that in the 17th century in England, there was a huge demand. There were many more people going to Oxford, Cambridge, and the courts of law. All right, and we see the same thing uh, now when uh, people are going not just to college. A college degree now 
is really not giving you that much advantage. So it's advanced degrees, uh, PhDs, uh, medical degrees, but especially law degrees. The law degree is the most, um, uh, the law degree holders, the most dangerous ones, because if you think about famous revolutionaries, Lenin, Castro, uh, Robespierre, they were all lawyers. Uh, Gandhi was also a lawyer. And by the way, why are lawyers um, particularly um, dangerous? That's because the training in law prepares them for a career of politician. They are uh, ambitious. They are typically quite smart and uh, educated. They have good connections. And so that uh, if you have too many of such uh, elite aspirants, then too many of them will be frustrated in getting into power positions. And that's the group that turns and becomes counter-elites. So Lenin, Castro, and uh, Bolsheviks, uh, Los Barbudos, and so on and so forth. And that uh, that's the segment of the population that organizes their popular discontent uh, and channels it against the ruling regime. Now, all these students in the US and uh, and increasingly in the UK, you talked about one of the the factors behind the beginning of an end, an end time being immiseration. And of course, one of the problems with our our overeducated population at the moment is that everybody is carrying a vast amount of debt. So not only have they gone through all this trouble to get their many, many degrees, but they leave with in the US hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and here an average of somewhere between 40 and 60,000 pounds hanging over their heads that have to be paid back, even as they don't get the jobs they thought they were going to get. Exactly. It's a dangerous dynamic, isn't it? Even more dangerous, perhaps, than the dynamics you've seen in the past. Yes, it's very dangerous. And I am putting this in sort of materialistic terms. Mm. But uh, when you look at the passions that drive revolutionaries and radicals, they don't necessarily would not admit it's because they are just trying to get into a power position, right? It's because they perceive the whole situation as unfair. And so this desire for to overthrow this unjust regime is really uh, what is the more proximate motivation in uh, driving these radical movements. Okay, so... We have these situations now. You're making me feel very uncomfortable, I have to say, Peter. Um, How dangerous do you think it is? You refer to the turbulent 20s. What do you expect to happen next? Let's stick with the US, where a lot of your your focus is at the moment. What do you expect to happen next there? Who do you see as the counter-elites? And how do you see that playing out? Well, the the counter-elites are coming from those... um, Frustrated uh, lawyers, especially interestingly enough, the Yale Law School seems to produce quite a lot of uh, such individuals. Stuart Rhodes, the founder and and the head of the Oath Keepers, he was a graduate of Yale Law School. And uh, many of the populist uh, right-wing senators, for example, they are also graduates, law, law school graduates. So um, right now we see uh, in the United States, uh, because the state is still quite strong, FBI is keeping a lead on organized violence. So in the United States, what we see the counter elites, they tend to take the route of using the legal or uh, methods. For example, what I see is that uh, they are trying to take over the, one of the parties, the Republican Party, and reconfigure it into a revolutionary party, so to speak. Keep in mind that the Republican Party started 
as a revolutionary party back yeah. in the uh, 1850s, right? Uh, the counter-elites then were the new um, wealthy manufacturers and railroad magnates who uh, rebelled against the established elites who were the southern uh, slaveocracy, so to speak. And so the Republican Party was the vehicle to overthrow the old regime. It, unfortunately, it led to a civil war. So um, in the United States, uh, it is very hard to imagine a civil war along the lines of American civil war back um, 160 years ago. But people in America in 1850s also couldn't imagine uh, that a civil war would happen. In fact, this is the rule. People in this pre-crisis period, they seem to be quite blithe about uh, the possibility of violence. And mm -hmm. so they rock the boat without thinking about that the boat can get upset, in fact. And so what exactly the form that the continuation of this crisis would take, uh, we don't know. But uh, from our analysis of um, uh, many past societies, uh, we know that these periods of uh, heightened uh, social instability and political violence, they typically are not over in just a year or two. Mm -hmm. uh, the mode is uh, it's somewhere between 10 and 20 years, typically, it takes to, for this to work out of the system. Well, maybe America is too big anyway. What do you think that the U.S. government could or should do to head this off? What big changes could they make to change the direction of travel, or is it too late? Well, uh, of course, I'm, I'm a scientist, not a politician. So uh, the details would have to be worked out. But essentially, the most important thing is to shut down the wealth pump uh, by getting the typical workers' wages to increase together with the economy. Uh, we eventually shut down the overproduction of the wealthy. Also, we uh, shut down overproduction of the credential because there would be not quite as much incentive to go and uh, get credentials. So that's, uh, unfortunately, it takes um, a number of years for those changes to percolate. It's a general principle, seems to be pretty clear that uh, in all case studies that we studied, the eventual end of end times and the times of new beginnings resulted from shutting down the wealth pump. In my book, I discuss the reform period in Russia. That was 1860s. Alexander II, the Tsar who presided and pushed their reforms. He told his nobles that we either have a revolution from below or reforms from above, you choose. And they chose to do reforms from, from the above. And it was really a very extensive set of reforms. It really reconfigured the Russian Empire and it uh, delayed revolution by 50 years. See, unfortunately, it's like riding a bicycle. You have to balance all the time. You cannot... Just because you have uh, negotiated one turn doesn't mean that you can relax and, and uh, allow things to happen automatically. And another, um, if you go back in, uh, in the past, uh, during the early Roman Republic was also a very similar situation when uh, the ruling class essentially allowed the commanders to, to enter the ruling class and also uh, reduced the immiseration. They essentially canceled the debts. So there are a um, number of examples where uh, we see positive things, shutting down the wealth pump, happen without 
um, a revolution, a civil war. But unfortunately, as I said, uh, it's more common is to have uh, something really violent. You're making me feel reasonably hopeful in that I reckon that uh, interest rates going up from nothing to 5 to 6% in a reasonably short amount of time will destroy a vast amount of wealth. There's lots of, that's not a good, necessarily a good thing, is it a good thing? Depends how you look at it, I guess. And then there's lots of conversation about cancelling student debt or changing the way student debt operates, both in the US and the UK. And those are, are both things that change the nature of, of the wealth pump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The debt is a wealth pump, right? Because um, the, uh, because people, indebted people keep paying uh, interest to you know, to uh, wealthy people. So canceling debt is, in fact, a very uh, traditional way of trying to reconfigure the society. Okay, but we were going to end on a positive note, right? Our, our science of history is not perfect, but it is certainly good enough to uh, yield us very valuable uh, insights about why we got into this predicament. So um, instead of blaming uh, each other, left blaming the right and vice versa, what we need to do, we need to address those uh, fundamental trends, the structural trends that are driving the uh, end times. All right. And so whether we can do it this time around, we'll see. But I'm actually quite optimistic that the next time the end times come around, that we will have much better science of history that will allow us to, in fact, avoid them. Okay, so next time this happens, we can just follow. We can follow the science, and everything will be fine. <laughs> That's right. Mm. <laughs> not one hundred percent convinced. We'll see. Listen, Peter, I want to ask you one last question. This is not necessarily your area, but I ask all my guests this, and you may have an insight into it. In that, the, the question is: If you had to take one of these things, only one, and keep it for ten years, which would it be? And the question is: Either gold or Bitcoin. And I'm wondering if you might think that perhaps Bitcoin being the currency of the counter elite might be something that one might want to hang on to above gold, or uh -huh. being the kind of person who knows a lot about crisis, uh, you might want to just have gold in coins. Well, I would say gold because I'm a historian. Bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> yeah, has not been around long enough for me to trust it, but gold is gold. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I really hope that you're mostly wrong. And, well, and so do I. And I enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts positively if you can. Thank you to everyone who has already done so. The producer is absolutely obsessed with reading them. And if you leave bad ones, you will make her unhappy. Good ones only, please. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Sunset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi and Moses Andam. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks, of course, to Peter Turchin and to John Stepek. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled, which, by the way, has quite a lot in it this week on that matter of the excess savings we were discussing earlier, well worth reading. The link is in the show notes. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.